Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Melissa McGibbon. And before we get to Melissa, I have a few things to say. First, our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. You can go there. You can listen to the show. You can see links to other places you can listen to the show, like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio. We're also on Spotify, iHeartRadio, pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. If you go to the website, you can also see photos of our guests. You can see some stories that they've written. You can see stories that I've written. You can see links to their social media, and you can see links to our social media. By that, of course, I mean Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. We have a Facebook page. Follow us at all those places. Subscribe to us. And if you can, please give us a good rating at wherever you listen. Say nice things because that boosts our presence and helps more people find the show. And if you can do that, I would appreciate it. You think you'd be right for the show? You know somebody who might be right for the show? Do you want to write me and ask me any questions about travel? Maybe just say nice things? You can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. All right, I'm recording this intro on February 15th, a couple days after I just went to the Super Bowl. It's not exactly something that was on my radar. Of course, everybody knows the Super Bowl, and it'd be nice to go to one. But look, my team is the Chicago Bears. That wasn't going to happen this year (laughs) and may not happen for quite a long time. So I'm not going to see them. And I have a price point on things now. I mean, look, am I a sports fan? Sure. Am I a serious sports fan? No, I'm a casual one. And there's a a point at which paying ridiculous prices is just that, ridiculous. And the prices, the cheapest ticket which for the Super Bowl, which was here in Los Angeles at SoFi Stadium, the brand new stadium where the Rams and the Chargers play, cheapest ones we saw online were for like $3,500. I mean, just ridiculous for nosebleed seats. So there I was, content with staying home, having a little party with some friends. And what do I get? A text from a buddy, an old actor friend of mine who I've known for many years, Long story short, this buddy of mine's got a friend that he grew up with who's now a bigwig at a certain corporation that is very involved with the sports industry, who had four corporate seats and just gave my friend four tickets for free to the Super Bowl the night before. Yeah, I couldn't believe it either. I thought it was a joke. He said, no, I'm serious. I said, you're serious. He said, yeah. And there I was at the Super Bowl. Me, my gal, my buddy, his buddy, who I also knew as well, having the best time of our lives with a free ticket. All we did was spend money on beer and food, which of course was outrageous, but I got out of there for a Super Bowl for under $100 and a great game, and it all worked. So it started out as a crappy 2022. I'm talking uh, deaths in the family, uh, deaths of a family friend, and of course, uh, if you've been listening, my detached retina that happened while I was on a ship. 
and had emergency eye surgery on January 11th, and I've been recovering from that ever since. Still not 100% vision in my uh, right eye, but I had my checkup, a one-month-after-surgery checkup uh, last Friday, and they said it's looking good. But it's still going to take two, three more weeks to get my full vision back and still can't fly for another month. But the news was good. So that started off the weekend on Friday. Saturday night, I get a text that I got a Super Bowl ticket. Sunday, go to the Super Bowl. What a weekend. Oh, and Monday, Valentine's Day, had a nice romantic dinner, which I cooked myself. Thank you very much. So all in all, a pretty damn good weekend. Those four days beat the hell out of every single day of January. So let's keep this momentum going, shall we? Knock on wood. There, I just knocked it. And also last week, I got to interview Melissa McGibbon, someone who i never met before. I believe I found her on Facebook because she's friends of friends of friends of a lot of people in the travel business who I know or have interviewed in the past. Anyway, Melissa is what you could call a classic travel writer. She's really more of an adventure travel writer. That's her kind of niche. Niche? Niche? I don't know how you say it. Anyway, she's big into outside sports and activities like skiing and scuba diving. And she writes for things like Outside Magazine and does uh, gear reports and reviews for various publications. She has written for Lonely Planet. She's a pro. She's a professional travel writer. She's based in Salt Lake City, Utah. So perfect place for an active person who loves the mountains. We cover a bunch of stuff. Anyway, if you want to follow Melissa and her writing, you can go to melissamcgibbon.com. Melissa spelled with one L, two S's, McGibbon, M-C-G-I-B-B-O-N. She's also on Instagram as Miss Melissa, M-I-S-S-M-L-I-S-S. And we'll have links to her sites on TravelTalesPodcast.com. But if you want to learn the most about her, you can listen to my conversation right now. Please enjoy my chat with Melissa McGibbon. Melissa McGibbon in Salt Lake City. Hello. A native Utahan. Is it is it Utahan or Ute? What what are what are your natives called? Yes, our natives are called Utahns. I am a native Utahn. Uh, the Utes are the football team. Right. And the uh, tribe that it's named after. And the tribe right? that they're named after. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So you grew up there. And according to your bio, non-Mormon, because I'm sure that's when anybody says they're from Utah, that's got to come up, right? At some point? It almost always comes up in conversation, even if I'm in, like, I remember being in Fiji many years ago. (laughs) And the only thing that the Islanders knew was that Mormon is associated with polygamy. (laughs) So, or, you know, Utah, Mormon. Right. Mormon, polygamy. And so I have to be very clear. I've actually never been Mormon. And so it was a super, I'm going to use the word interesting place to grow up, not being Mormon here. Yeah, I always wonder about that. Do you feel like an outsider? Yeah. I mean, it was was pretty terrible as a little kid because not being Mormon, you know, you get left out of a lot of stuff. It's pretty, it's not a very inclusive place to live if you're not part of the church. And now it's better. After the Olympics, things changed a lot. More people moved here and it became more diverse. And now I actually don't know that many people who are from here that are in my bubble of skiing and biking and all that. Most people who live here who are in my circle, I would say are transplants, but there are some of us here who have never been Mormon. And, um, but yeah, it's a, it's an interesting place. If you can get past all of the politics and religion, um, then the access to recreation is great. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, no, I, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful state. I have friends in uh, St. George, and of course, I've been to Park City, and I've spent time in Salt Lake City, and I've worked there. And uh, no, every time I go back, I'm I'm struck by just how much there is to see and do there. I mean, that was one of my big COVID road trips in 2020. I it was one of the last places in the country I hadn't seen were the Southern Canyons. There, so I went to Zion, I went to Bryce, uh, Moab, all that stuff. It's really, truly amazing. Yeah, it's such a unique landscape. There is so much to offer here, and it really is beautiful. I never get tired of looking at the mountains. There's a lot to love about Salt Lake City in particular, and um, and obviously the Mighty Five down south with Zion and Arches and all that. I'm glad you had a chance to see it. Really is. As far as I know, there's no place else like it on Earth. I would say Jordan is maybe similar, having recently been there. But just landscape-wise, the the Red Rocks. It was funny on the, uh, and then I'll get off the Mormon thing, but it's really interesting that you go to these little islands, like you said, Fiji or something like that, and you go to Hawaii, and there's like a BYU in Hawaii and stuff like that, and you realize how far the missionaries went around the world. So they may not know, I mean, one of the reasons they know Utah and, and, and the church is because, you know, there's, there's two guys in uh, white shirts and <laughs> going door to door in these little islands. And you're like, oh, right. They spread their wings pretty far. They have people everywhere. For they sure. do. They really um, do. Wherever there's people, there's somebody there to uh, ring their bell and tell them, ask them if they've heard the good news. Right. <laughs> the good news. They, they they stopped trying to convert me, I think, when I was about 12. But prior to that, I think there were pretty frequent visits, too. This is what my friend in St. George, who moved there, and his neighbor was like an elder or something like that, his next-door neighbor. And when the day they first met, uh, he just said, we'll have a deal. You don't try to convert me, and I don't try to convert you. And the guy went, all right. And they've been great friends ever since. Yeah, that sounds like a square deal. Yeah. <laughs> but Utah, one of the fastest-growing, I guess, population states in the country, right? Yep, that's correct. Our population is set to double by 2050, which is horrifying because one, that of the, is. one of the things that makes it so cool or to this point pretty cool is that we have had a lower population density. So housing has been more affordable, less traffic, easier to get around. and um, But that is changing quite a lot. The housing prices have risen sky high in the last couple of years. And um, it's definitely the word has gotten out. I think for a long time, everybody thought, well, you can't go to Utah because you can't get a drink and it's weird there. <laughs> and although some of that is still true, yeah. <laughs> um, I think the, the cat's out of the bag in terms of location and all of that offers here. Let's talk about travel writing and how you got into it. You uh, sent me a little bio. It was great. How you sent me like frequently asked questions about you and and stuff like that. And said so the first time you left the country, fourteen, and this was a school trip to France. Yeah. Yep, I was barely fourteen. I don't know how my parents agreed to this, but um, I did it with my French class, and we did one of those bus tours around France, Switzerland, and Monaco. And it was my first taste of what it was like out in the world. And I'm so glad that I did that trip because it was a great way to see, for instance, the Eiffel Tower before many more billions of people were on the planet also competing for that space. There were no lines to take your photo at the time. And it was really incredible just to get out with other kids my age and 
be turned out. I mean, not that they turned us loose in the streets of Paris and we couldn't just go do whatever we wanted, but it was nice to have that independence. And that was kind of how I got the full bug. Well, it's not like you were um, going from New York to Paris. You were going from Utah to Paris. So it must have been a pretty sizable culture shock. What are the, what is the, like the first memories you can, you recall from like walking the streets? What blew you away when you first got to France and Paris? Um, the, the number of people and they, they give you these pep or prep talks before you go. Um, like make sure you always are minding your money and you keep your hands in your pockets because <laughs> oh, there are gypsies pockets. Yeah. And yeah. Just kind of, it was at a time when I think, I don't know how much experience our chaperones and my French teacher had traveling (laughs) either, but it was way less scary than they had made it out to be. I think they were trying to help us be prepared and cautious, but the way they made it sound was that there would be pickpocketers at every corner. And I don't think that was the case. Um, So I think it was just so amazing to be exposed to the things that we had learned about in French class. And I developed my love of art at that point, super early on. I mean, who wouldn't when you get to go see (laughs) Monet in Paris? Yeah, you go to the Louvre. Yes, we went to the Louvre and saw the Mona Lisa again before, I don't know what happened, you know, since then, just Instagram or the world getting bigger. But it was neat to visit those places before there were lines of people lining up to take selfies. Selfies didn't exist at the time, or maybe yeah. they did, but they were in the form of like a disposable camera. Yeah, nobody, you didn't waste, you know, your precious film on turning it around on your your own face. You know, you had like 20, what, 21, 22 shots in, the, in a roll of film, shots. 24 yeah. shots. And you're just like, I got to be really choosy. Do I put this on my big face or do I point it at the Eiffel Tower? You know what? I'll take the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, you you have to be very choosy about what you decide to use your camera on. So, um, and I I still have some of those photos. It's really fun to look back on and see what I might have found interesting at the time. But going to Mont Saint Michel and seeing um, all of that stuff from such an early age just really leaves such an impression on you. And I can't recommend that enough for any parents to let their kids go have that kind of experience in more of a controlled environment where there are people looking out for them and making sure that you know, they're not getting like mugged, but that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't, it turned out not to be an issue. Right. right. Like, nobody got pickpocketed on that trip that I'm aware of. Well, that's a pretty good school because my French class, uh, we went to like a fresh French restaurant in Chicago. So that was, <laughs> that was our big field trip. You get to go to France. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good deal. Yeah. I will say that the French people do hate vegetarians and I had been vegetarian since I was 12. So this was a couple of oh. years into it. They still, every time I've been to France since then, they have not changed their stance on it. They're still pretty <laughs> offended by vegetarians. They don't like it. Why would you not eat meat? Well, uh-huh. Yeah, they don't. It's not, it's not a great uh, locale for me to go if I'm looking to travel for food. Well, yeah. Well, the other hard ones, I don't know if you've been, you probably have, but I think like Brazil and Argentina are really tough for for vegetarians. I mean, being in Argentina, I've never had steak shoved in my face more than (laughs) every single day. It's like, what kind of steak do you want? It's like, I didn't even ask. Stop giving me steak. Yeah, um, it's not really an easy thing. It's getting better better than it was, but, and I haven't been to Argentina yet. 
I did go to Brazil on semester at sea and I, I don't think there were a lot of options at that time, but I know really <laughs> shit most of the time anyway. So, well, let's talk about that because I did interview uh, the head of semester at sea last year and you said in your very helpful bio that you sent that you were on semester at sea. Yeah. So, um, a lot of people look at that, although you had been out of the country before, but a lot of people look at that as one of the things that really gave him the travel bug. Did that change your perspective in your life as well? Absolutely. I think it changes everybody who goes on it. They always talk about on board, I'm sure no matter which trip you're on, they'll say like, you'll go back and you'll change your major and your boyfriend and everything about your life <laughs> because it completely changes you. And then you find out like when you go home, people are like, Oh, you missed a good game or something like that. But, um, you've seen the world and, and in my case, literally circumnavigated the globe. So, um, I, I guess people should go back and listen to your conversation. Yeah. With, uh, is it Scott Marshall? Yeah. How um, long were you on and where did you go? I was on spring 2002. So it's actually, I hate to even admit this because it ages me. Um, it was the, the, 20 year anniversary is now. So we started in the Bahamas and then we circumnavigated and ended up in Seattle. Wow. So it was 11 ports, including Cuba, which is where we had met and had dinner with Fidel Castro. Okay. Now, all right. So Fidel Castro, and this is like 2002. So it's pretty fresh after 9 11. Yeah, it was right I mean, after 9-11, which is actually why I got to go on it, because I was on the wait list. And then I think a bunch of students canceled. And so they allowed more kids to go on it. And I didn't realize until listening to your show with, with uh, Scott Marshall that it actually is always um, 75% women and 25% <laughs> men. It's like usually two thirds, because we thought that it was because of 9-11 and that whole cancellation that there were so many girls to guy ratio. Um, but apparently that's not the case. And it always is kind of that way. And my theory about that is because you okay. were, yeah, we, we couldn't stuff. figure it out. We had a couple of different theories, but I'd like to hear yours. Why it's mostly women. I think it's mostly women because girls share what they're up to and what they're doing more with each other socially, like guys will get engaged and not bring it up right away with their friends at the gym or whatever. They'll be like, Oh, what do you, what do you have going on this weekend or yeah. whatever? And then like, you know, I'm getting married. Like, oh yeah, I got engaged. <laughs> like they just right. don't mention stuff like women do. So I think that's maybe something that would be a part of it. Just the girls. And we also want to get other people involved and bring our friends and tell everybody, this is what I'm doing. But I, I don't think that that's typically social of young men in college. I wonder if it's also maybe that, you know, there's a little more fear amongst women to travel independently. Um, uh, and maybe they see like being on the ship with other, a lot of other students as a, as a safer kind of controlled environment and a way to, to see it. Whereas guys are just to be like, ah, I'll just go, I'll, I'll hitchhike or whatever, you know? And, and, yeah. and I think there might be something to it than that, but yeah, it, it seems, but that might be the same kind of ratio, honestly, in travel journalism too, because, you know, as someone has been doing this for about, you know, a dozen years or so. It is mostly women as well in the travel media field, yeah, it seems. I think that's true. I mean, when I did semester at sea, I went purposefully not knowing anybody so that I would have to get out there and make friends. And I think that it's an environment where you can put yourself in that situation and expose yourself to a bunch of different people. And I don't know that I would have become a travel writer if I hadn't done semester at sea, honestly, because 
I needed to be exposed to people around me and know that that was a career option. Because I think prior to that, you know, Utah has one of the, like the poorest education systems and my college was great. Westminster was amazing and provided lots of opportunities, but still when you're that young, you're like, do I want to be a nurse? Do I want to be a teacher? They're just not. But when you expose yourself to the kind of privilege that some other kids that maybe come from wealthier families, like the kind that go on semester at sea, you see what opportunities there are. And so I think maybe being a woman in that situation and being exposed to those kind of people and realizing like, Hey, I see that this girl on board has this kind of career that's similar. Maybe that's something I could do also. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but no, I get it. I mean, like I like I said, I didn't. I had never left the country till you know right after college and doing the six week backpacking thing around you know Europe and stuff. But I would meet guys and and you know people in hostels, and uh, you know they were just like, yeah, oh, I'm on my eighth month of traveling. I'm going around the world, and I, I was just like, oh, you can do that. I guess. <laughs> like, I didn't know anybody who did, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, it was just some rube from Illinois. I didn't, I didn't know that you could, to me, six weeks seemed like a super long time. And these kids, oh, you've been traveling for a year. I didn't even know it was a thing. I didn't even know it was possible. You know, sometimes you got to see, but, you know, stand up to me and and, uh, show business was the same way. I didn't know anybody growing up in it. I didn't know you could do it. I didn't know how to get into it. And then it wasn't until I saw... You know, I was old enough and, and went to Chicago, saw people like my own age on stage up there doing it. I was like, oh, I, I guess if he's doing it, I, I, I guess you can just go up there and do it. Like it didn't dawn on me. Like I probably no, grew up, you probably grew up in a place like I did where it's like saying you wanted to do show business or anything or be a travel writer and travel around the world. They looked at you and were like, well, that's cute. No, what do you really want to do? You know, it was like right. saying you wanted to walk on Mars. <laughs> that's not a thing that the career counselors in high school list is like options. They're not like, do right. you want to be a stand-up comedian? Would you like to be a podcast host? Yeah. Um, for me, I think they were like, oh, you love animals? Cool. You should be a vet. And that uh, would be like the worst job for me because I couldn't I couldn't handle seeing any animal in any kind of pain. But um, I think I knew that I wanted to do something with travel, even from a super young age, because again, I had done that French class trip. Right. And I think I was actively discouraged from trying to become a travel writer. People were like, oh, like you can't do that. You have to have an Ivy League degree and you'll have to go live in New York and make all these contacts and it's impossible. Like there's no way you can do it and you'll never make any money. And that actually is true. But um, (laughs) they hit the nail on the head on that one. That was a pretty, I could have listened harder to that tip. Yeah, sure. So um, I think because I had done that class or, you know, the trip with my French class early on and then done semester C. And then I went backpacking three years after college. I already had this huge head start with travel and it became a thing where I was like, okay, I need to find a way to make a career out of this. And so it was, I'm a traveler first and then I became a writer. So I put the two together, but it wasn't because I got a degree in journalism from NYU and then an internship at Condé Nast. The the New York Times. yeah, Or whatever. Yeah. Like that's, I mean, I think the path for everybody is so different. And for a long time, I felt really insecure because I don't have a journalism degree. 
but in chatting with so many of my other travel writer friends in like the society of American travel writers, um, lots of people don't have journalism degrees. Yeah. It's, it's what did you major in? Um, international business and English. So, uh, well, it's kind of related. They're, they're both, they're all intertwined. Sure. I mean, I think it's all par- part of the college experience and you learn how to learn and I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'm so glad that I went. Yeah. You're doing international business. And That's before right. before we forget, before, I can't let you gloss over the whole Fidel Castro thing. Oh, so yeah. 2002, how is this set up? I'm sure it's like, oh, we're going to show off uh, Cuba to these, to these young people. And uh, I thought, I wouldn't think that he would meet with a bunch of college kids. <laughs> you think you'd be a little busier than that, but uh, how did it go down? I mean, au contraire, Fidel Castro actually jumped at the chance to talk to a bunch of American college kids about I guess uh, communism and the, and, yeah, the, and the wonders of it. Yeah. And no surprise. Um, he did talk a lot about communist propaganda. Yep. Um, so there was a loophole. I don't know if everybody knows this, but Americans hadn't been allowed to go to Cuba for many years since uh, what 1959 Yep. during the revolution. And so there were few exceptions, but one of them came in the Bush administration the W administration. Yeah. Uh, Bush two. Like Bush two. Number, what was he? 40? Nah, I don't remember. Three? It was 43. Um, so we found an educational loophole and that's how they were allowed to make a port stop there. And somebody had a connection and Castro found out we were coming and invited us to come listen to him speak, which he did for six hours. Oh, and you I were, don't know. did you watch for six hours? Yeah, because uh, Al Castro and you're in the situation, but he didn't even stop to pee. And after that, we learned he's sort of known for his ability to speak to crowds for long periods of time without stopping. And then after he invited us over for some, you know, Cuba Libras and some salsa dancing by his very large pool. <laughs> That's yeah. so cool. So did it, do you like line up for photo op and, and shake hands and that kind of thing? There were a couple of kids that got to shake hands with him and meet him. Um, not everybody, obviously. There were 600 kids on semester at the time. Yeah. And so it's that would be like too many of us. But um, it was a fairly unique experience. And um, I don't think they do it anymore. I'm not sure that Cuba is a port of call. And obviously, like Castro passed away. So that wouldn't be an opportunity. But it was such a unique. No, that's amazing. Yeah, it was really cool. A um, little bit of history, but it. It is interesting. Even, I don't know how good your Spanish is, uh, but even seeing him in person, uh, I've seen shows and people perform in other languages and stuff. And and I've been on stage enough to know, like, even if I can't understand a guy, you know, I've seen shows in in Argentina and all in Spanish. I've seen shows in Hebrew. (laughs) And uh, you don't have to know a language to know if a guy's got it, you know, like charisma um, yeah, he actually does have a lot of charisma. It was very, I would think you can't get that big without having it. You know what I mean? Yeah, so he's always portrayed as being very serious, which is fair, but he was smiling and laughing a little bit. My Spanish is only okay. They had translators that we could put into our ear to listen to the exact translation of what he was saying. And you kind of check out after like hour three, right. but, um, hour three, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, he certainly, he certainly had enough charisma and I think it was an experience that all of us can appreciate. I think, um, you know, he's no Ricky Ricardo. No. Oh, Lucy. (laughs) So after Cuba, 
you finished school finally. Finally. Well, no, as someone. You're not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) How many years was college? I think five and a half years. Okay. But I mean, I had a minor and took some time (laughs) off to be a lifty at Snowbird and find myself. I don't know. Okay. So you were a ski bum. I had friends who did that. I had a friend who was a, um, I went to college with back in Illinois and he was that guy who threw everything in his truck as soon as he graduated and moved to Colorado and got a job at, uh, oh, near Breckenridge, like Summit County up there. Yeah. And, um, was there for like 12 years. Now that's a lifestyle that's dangerous because you can get sucked into it pretty long time. And next thing you know, this is what happened to him. He turned around, he was 30 and going, oh my God, I'm living in a, <laughs> I'm getting too old for this, basically, is what he had. And uh, you have to work a real job sometime, at some point. Did Eventually, you run into that? Um, I feel like I still don't have a real job. Well, true. Quotes, real job. Um, I do think that being better at skiing is fundamental to what I do in terms of travel writing and writing about gear. So it actually did help. Right. And I can justify you know, working as a lifty for only one season, it was fine. <laughs> so as someone who early on found other, you know, you know, discovered the world basically um, in her own life, I'm a little surprised that you stayed in Utah all this time. Did you, you never thought about, uh, or even moving around the U.S.? Maybe you oh, live gosh. in New York, maybe you live in uh, San Francisco or... You and me both. I am... I always thought I would leave and I just never did. Um, The only reason I'm here now is that one, I'm 20 minutes door to cherry lift from skiing, which is really hard to compete with. And I'm also pretty close to the airport, like similar time around 20, 25 minutes. And that just doesn't exist in a lot of places. Um, The other reason is that I have what I call a part-time dog. Uh Uh, He's not technically mine, so I can't just take him wherever I want. He belongs to another human, but I get to watch him a lot, and he's my baby. And so um, as long as I get to keep watching him, I think I'll stick around. But I certainly fantasize about moving to Canada or New Zealand, some other place, and I just haven't. But also, I ended up buying a house right after college when they were giving them out like candy. And oh, so, wow. <laughs> you could, just, that's still possible? I mean, that was, no, that was possible? Uh, I don't think it's possible anymore. And I, yeah. don't, I, I don't think I should have qualified. I'm one of the people that benefited from the housing crisis. They were like, oh, you make $9 now. We're cool. Yeah, like, sure. House. I got one of those loans. Sure. Back in 06, I think it was. Yeah. So that ended up anchoring me and um, I just stuck around. But yeah, I, I never really expected to. And it is a unique thing. I'm always... I feel insecure about it. Like oh, I, I'm sorry. I've been around the world and I, <laughs> I get it that it's a unique place here. I get that I'm in a bubble, but I, I just haven't left yet. But I'm not saying I won't. At some point, I'll probably cash in my chips and move to like Spain or somewhere that has like skiing and the beach. I don't know. Well, some places are, you know, a bubble is nice sometimes, especially when you travel as much as we do. It's nice to come home to it. Sure. When I'm home, it's great. And yeah. then I can ski at Alta and do my thing here, but, um, it doesn't mean that I don't understand that it's different other places. (laughs) So after the ski bum life, when did the writing take off and when did, uh, travel writing really become your thing? I worked in the film industry for a bit in Utah 
because really? for Sundance, yeah, Sundance is here. Yeah. So, um, I, I did what I could in that industry. Um, and I started writing film reviews, which is how I got my first few clips. Um, not like as a film critic, but I was just doing reviews as part of my work at the festival. And then, um, sort of took around a look around at everybody ahead of me, like 10 years and they all seemed kind of miserable and I knew there was <laughs> Hollywood, baby. That's yeah, it. That's, that's us. The miserable people. Woo! I mean, it just, everybody had to either move to LA or New York if they wanted to further their career. And it just didn't, nobody was <clears throat> happy. And I get that happy is kind <laughs> of an elusive idea, but um, I started you know, I'd, I'd been a climber for a while at this point and had, you know, had a background of skiing and whatnot. So I sort of ventured into writing about outdoor sports. And then I went to outdoor retailer <clears throat> after like writing for a local mag and which outdoor retailer for people who don't know is sort of like an industry trade event. And I would say that maybe Sundance for people in the film world is akin to outdoor retailer for the people on outdoor rec. So it's like our big festival of, you know, gear and all that. So um, anyway, I went there and I was like, Oh, these are my people. Like this is where I met <laughs> my tribe and it made so much more sense. So I made that leap. And then I got invited on a press trip to Cody, Wyoming was the first one that I took to do some ice climbing. And after that, I was like, Oh, <laughs> this is great. Like I'm going to, go see all these places and then I get to write about them and it started from there. So I've been doing that the last like 12 years or so. Was it always uh, freelance for you or were you ever on staff someplace? Uh, technically on staff at Outdoor Sports Guide, which is a local publication, just a regional. Um, and then I started a few years ago writing for Outside, Backpacker and uh, Ski Magazine is coming up, which is exciting. Um Lonely Planet I've been writing for for a few years, which has been really great because Lonely Planet was so instrumental, probably for you as well. All our lives. In the early days of traveling, backpacking through Europe, that was the Bible. Yeah. So uh, it's really neat to write for them. And I'm very proud of that. So your writing career is really kind of dovetailed and gone along with the advent of social media and the, uh, the internet as like really essential now to travel. So did you look at these things like Instagram and Facebook and stuff when they came on the scene going, okay, I hate this or I can really utilize this as, as for my career? Which way did you go? Interesting. I never really looked at it as a tool early on for something that would help me with my career as an adventure travel writer. Um, I think I loved it for the social aspect. I'm fairly... Um, extroverted. So I think it's great for someone like me and a great way to keep in touch with, let's say, former shipmates, mm -hmm. etc. People around um, the world. It's, it's great for it. Yeah. So I think it was good for just sharing those experiences, but I didn't start seeing it as maybe a tool for something that would help me in my career until like the last several years. Now I kind of feel like, yeah, you kind of have to be on Instagram, but I am <laughs> not an influencer in any capacity. And I try to be very clear that I'm more of a traditional journalist. When you fill out the media form to go visit a destination and they ask like, how many followers do you have? I'm like, I'm just not, I just don't even answer. I'm like, I'm not, <laughs> you should not, you should not be having me on this trip because of my following, because that's not going to get you anywhere. Like my right. grandma is going to maybe 
<laughs> like my post, but it's not. <laughs> I know it's a different way to go. I mean, there's there's a difference between. I mean, you kind of started out the way I did. I mean, I started in newspapers, which you know was a long to out of school. You know that was that was my thing, and then you just slowly saw that media, you know, print media kind of disappear, and it, oh, yeah. this is all going online now. So you can either fear it or you know jump on board, and that's Embrace the way. It. Yeah. It's become a fairly big part of it. I mean, especially destinations when they're, you know, they want you to showcase the location. And I think that Instagram is a great way to do that, to share your stories and to show people what it's like. Um, but I just try not to guarantee coverage that way because my coverage is more traditional, like something that you're going to read online or find in a, a print publication. So if you, you said you were a climber as well. Um yeah. Okay. I mean, now rock climbing, like ropes and the whole deal. Cause I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that. I love hiking. Um, and I like mountains. So, you know, I did, I did Kilimanjaro. I, uh, I like, you know, I did a 14 er and a couple of them in Colorado as well, but I, uh, I'm not into the, I have not like repelling and the whole rope thing. I just haven't really done. I do have a yeah. height issue, I think. Uh. That. I have no height issue. I feel like I might be missing a danger filter because I don't have any <laughs> of that. Um, I, yeah, I think I, I dated this guy in my early twenties that was like, you can never be a climber because you're too girly. And I was like, no, I'm definitely going to do it. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I've never gotten super, super into it. Like I say, I mean, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. So I'm not very good at any one thing, but I dabble in a lot climbing is one of them. Um, and ice climbing, rock climbing, whatever. I don't really like bouldering, which I always, people kind of are like, Oh, you don't like bouldering. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't speak to me, but, um, well for us flatlanders, what's the difference between rock climbing and bouldering? Oh, well, generally regular rock climbing is with ropes where you're going up and bouldering can be more lateral and it's not with ropes and people are generally just moving around. Um, maybe within like 20 feet. Just jumping ground. from rock to rock? Yeah, just jumping from rock to rock. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'll give it a shot. You know, I'll try anything know. once. Sure. I mean, try it. Let me know what, what you think. What was the most, for all the active sports that you do, what was the one time, A, have you ever been really hurt? And B, what was the one time you thought you were going to get hurt? It's like, this is really dangerous and I'm kind of scared. Um, I think... I think when I was downhill mountain biking in Peru, I started thinking about, um, well, a, I should say that I don't, I've fallen, you know, many times skiing and I haven't ever been like in a cast or anything like that. I'm knocking on wood here. Um, but when I went downhill mountain biking in Peru, I was sort of already into it and already, it was just escalating commitment when I realized if anything happens, I'm days away from medical attention. I don't know if this is a very smart idea and it's probably going to be super fun, but it's maybe not like the wisest decision I've made, but you know, once you're there and you're in it, what are you going to do? You didn't buy the ticket to not take the ride. So <laughs> go anyway and kind of hope for the best. And I try to be as careful as I can be in those dangerous situations, but I don't know. I mean, I think I've been really lucky and I might do some dangerous things, but I do them in pretty safe ways. But I've, I've definitely been in some like pretty hairy ski situations where I'm like mandatory air is not really for me, but I can, 
I can slide, <laughs> slide out of a lot. It's not pretty, but I can do it. So no, uh, no knee issues, no, uh, anything like that. I have knee issues, of course, like every skier does, but like, I'm mm. not going to be doing any moguls. That's not my jam. No, I can't. I never could. Never could. Just I'll stick to the blues. And then they throw a mogul in my way. And I'm like, why did you, why, why did you? Yeah. I'm done. I'd I'm rather be straight down. Absolutely. Absolutely. Something so steep. how about the, um, let's stick to skiing right now. Give me your top, yeah, I don't know, top three American places to go. I know you're probably a little biased to Utah, but uh, what about worldwide that you've been as well? Um, my home resort is Alta and I love it there. Um, so I am biased for sure, but it's also a world-class ski destination. So I'm not, there's some, there's some truth behind like why everybody loves it. Right. It's not just yeah saying, Oh, Alta is great. Like it really is amazing. Um, I think skiing in Switzerland and Chamonix and that whole region in the Alps was pretty spectacular, especially because you can cross the border on skis going in Zermatt. I don't know if you've done that. That's pretty no, fun. Can, that sounds great. Yeah. You can cross the border on skis into Italy and go have lunch and then you can just come right back. <laughs> they don't stamp your passport, unfortunately, but you can do that. And it's also just magnificently beautiful over there too. Um, Chamonix has got some great steep runs that I love. And then um, I love skiing in BC too, the okay. powder highway. Um, I recently went to Whistler, which was fantastic. We had an all-time day of just like fresh powder and blue skies and sunshine in the backcountry, and that was very spectacular. I'm I'm definitely going back to Whistler as soon as I can. That's a, that's amazing. Yeah, what, sometimes you get lucky. Yeah. What about uh, any places you've been that were really uh, world famous and you were were kind of a letdown for you? You're like, man, I don't get it. Nah, I'm gonna say like any day that you're skiing is pretty awesome. <laughs> if anything, I skied in Quebec. Uh, recently. And I thought it was going to be the famous East coast skiing, which everybody talks about being super icy, et cetera. And I've, I've not really skied the United States East coast, but I thought Quebec was great and the snow was, was pretty good. So if anything, I'm always just happy to be there skiing anywhere is exciting. Right. Well, the first uh, cancellation I had due to COVID was I was supposed to go to Japan and I wanted to go skiing there. I had friends that lived in Hong Kong for a couple of years, and they're from Colorado. And they went skiing in Japan and loved it. Did you ever ski there? Yeah, I skied in Hakuba a couple of years ago. Um, it's not quite the same as skiing in Hokkaido. I know there's there's that's sort of a legendary place, and it's certainly on my list to go back to um, and get more stuff done. Plus, I just love Japan. And, Me too. Uh, their whole like onsen culture and everything is amazing. Um, it's a really great place, but. Um, I'm going to have to go back to get some of their legendary Japao at some point. Yeah. <laughs> so where did, where did you ski there? It wasn't you weren't up in the North Island or you were? No, we were on um, Honshu on the main island. Oh, and okay. Skied in Hakuba, which is actually on the uh, Epic Pass. So it was pretty convenient. We just spent 10 days uh, exploring around like the southern area of Honshu and then went up to Hakuba, which is kind of near Nagano. Um and, okay. and just skiing there, there was no way I was going to go over there and not ski. <laughs> um, tell people what the Epic Pass, and by people I mean me, is. Oh, Epic is the <laughs> they they it's Vail Resorts essentially. So the Epic. Pass oh, right. Is, okay. Yeah, it's the one pass that you buy that's good. You can use it multiple resorts. So Vail owns resorts out there as well. Oh yeah, Vail oh, owns boy. Park City Mountain Resort here. Yeah, I know they've been buying up a lot of the ones here, but I didn't know they. 
it's spread their call. tentacles uh, all the way to Japan as well. I think it's more of a partnership than right. an outright ownership with them, but they their their reaches across the globe. Okay, well, what's your ski bucket list? Uh, well, number one for both ski and general travel is Antarctica. Like, I, oh yeah, I just I don't just want to go there and like have a cup of hot chocolate. Like, I want to go there and ski. And, I didn't know you um, could. Yeah, well, backcountry skiing, right? Yeah, I mean, I was I went there, but it was, it was like on a cruise, so I, you know, we got off at a certain points for the day. But I mean, there's no civilization there. It's not like there's lifts. No, no, there's and, no resort or ski lifts. <laughs> right. You gotta so earn it. You, you got to be choppered gotta, in pretty much. And then. No, no, you skin up. You got to earn it. You got to oh. slide up the hill on your skis first. And then I'm letting you, you have that one. I'm letting you have that one. Yeah, that's my, that's my big goal right now. I'm working on it. We'll see are you happens. all skiing or you snowboard as well? I am only a skier. Okay. Yeah, just uh, regular skiing, not even a tele skier, just ski and backcountry ski. All right. I think that, but for me, the boots are, I bad feet anyway, but the boots are so uncomfortable. I don't know how you can walk up with your skis over your shoulder in those boots. I can barely walk to the bar in those boots. How do you do it? Um, the, the setup is that the skis are actually attached to your feet. So you're just sliding up the hill and you have skins on the bottom of your skis that have these kind of hairs that keep you from sliding backward. And so you literally slide up the mountain before you ski down it. So you're not, they're not like on your shoulders or in your pack. If you're going to boot up in some areas, that would be the case, but you're just, um, with backcountry skiing, you're just sort of, or it's called ski touring also, but you're just sliding your way up before you ski down. Okay. I'm letting you have that one. I'm letting you have it. It's a really specific goal to ski in Antarctica. That is, that is it. And I hope it happens for you. It sounds you. super cool. Yeah, cross um, your fingers for me. We'll yeah, Antarctica is amazing. I mean, it's just, it's like nowhere else, of course. But oh, it's, I'm so it's really jealous. Cool. I but feel like the, everyone's uh, been there but me. No, most people have not been there. No. <laughs> Maybe in your uh, travel writer in my world. Yeah, in exactly. my world. Everybody is so casual about it too, right? Like, I feel like in my general world, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I travel a lot more than everybody else. And then I get around my fellow travel journalists and I'm very average and everybody has been to Antarctica without trying. They're like, well, I wasn't planning on going, but I got the invite. So I guess I'll go, <laughs> you know? I had to tell jokes for 25 years before they let me go. That was That's how I got there. But Well, you earned it. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I think I did. Um, so, but you're also, like me, a scuba diver, right? I am a diver, yep. Do you Where know you can you? dive in Antarctica too? Yeah, uh, no, that I did know. It's cold, for sure. I never did any uh, dry suit diving, actually. I would like I to. Some, uh, in Iceland, I dove the Silver Fissure, which is where you can touch the North American and Eurasian continental plates at the same time. Yes, I know some people who did that. Yeah, I got certified dry suit certified just so I could do that um, <laughs> in Iceland. You can't, you can't go there and not do that, right? Yeah. And how long could you uh, take the cold in the water? I mean, it's like brain freeze on your face. The rest of it. I mean, it's just not a real comfortable situation. Brain freeze on your face. I like that. Yeah, it was it was um, brutal, but you're not down there for very long. I mean, I think between 20 and 40 minutes, depending in that situation. And the water is so pure that you can take out your regulator and drink it. Wow. And it's, it's also great visibility down there. There's nothing swimming around or anything. You go in the caves is mostly what you're over there for. But yeah, yeah. When was Iceland? Because I still haven't um, been. Yeah, I went in 2014 and then again in early 2015. 
So it's beautiful. It's one of my favorite places. Everybody always asks me, this is a question you always get a lot as a traveler. And I'm sure you hear it all the time too. Like, what are your favorite places? It's a terrible question for us. It's hard because it depends on what you're after. But I like to say Switzerland, I think is the most beautiful place in the world. And Iceland is right up there. And I'm sure that if I had spent more time in New Zealand. That yeah, I was going to say, put that one up there, New Zealand up there, and Antarctica for natural beauty. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's like I have a million different answers to that. Oh, what's your favorite place? It's just like, what, what are we talking? Like cities? Are we talking food? Are we talking culture? Are we talking weather? You know, it's a whole different, you know, yeah. I can't pick just one. The world is wide. There's so much to explore. And I think that's why I'm in sort of an almost like panicky state to try to see everywhere that I want to see and get it all done because we're all working with this unknown commodity of time where I don't know, like I would love to go back to Iceland. I will always say yes to a trip to Switzerland, but really like there's so many more places to see too. I know. And you never know when things like uh, a global pandemic will shut everything down. Uh, you just never know. Or your health, you know, right. you never know if you can do it or time or, you know, you get another dog and then you have to stay, <laughs> stay home. People are always gambling with that asset of time. And I just, I don't know. I, I think I might take it a little bit more urgently than a lot of people do in terms of, you know, my list is quite big and I have a lot to see and do. And I'm trying to check stuff off the list, not to make it like a to-do list, but it kind of as a you know, you have to see the pyramids at some point. Yeah. There's so many things to see and do. And mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. I, I would argue that a lot of people sort of have the mentality that like, I'll get to it or I'll retire and then I'll see it, but you don't know what's coming. That's... Um, also traveling during a pandemic is challenging, but it's also a great time to go see a less crowded view of somewhere. Where have you been since the shutdown? Um, I went to... I went to the Middle East for the first time last fall. I went to Jordan and Egypt. Um, so it really was a lot less people than normal, apparently. Um, oh, yeah. With, with its own set of challenges in terms of getting the PCR tests. and it's, How many tests do you need? Did, when was this? What, it's um, probably went, changed since. but Yeah, I went in September. The hard thing is that your test, you know, you have to do 72 hours ahead of time and it has an expiration. So by the time you're entering one country, like, did it expire? And I had a weird layover in Cairo and it was all these things. By the time I got to Jordan, it was like two, three days later. So it was like, that element is complicated, but the trade-off is you are dealing with a lot less international travelers from all over the place, trying to get the same view that you're getting. Um, So I think that was the biggest trip I've taken during the pandemic and then just lots of little trips here and there. I mean, whether it's local resorts like Jackson or Sun Valley or they open the borders of Canada, as you know, and then I went to Whistler and uh, I feel like I should have just stayed, you know, yeah, they closed them again, didn't they? I, I, I've heard both. I'm not quite sure. I don't know what's going on over there, but uh, yeah, they, they let me in. I shouldn't have come back. <laughs> I get hadn't it. been for the dog. I totally get it. I totally get it. But uh, no, I just, uh, you know, the last guest before you, uh, she had gone to Egypt as well at the, around that same time. She said, well, I'll never see it like the pyramids this uncrowded ever. I mean, it, so it's really unique. I mean, she went pretty early on in the, in the pandemic. So it was probably a little more people now. I mean, you were just recently there. Yeah, I was just there uh, a couple of months ago. Oh, I yeah. also went to um, Yosemite for the first time ever. Everybody always... So did I. <laughs> did you? Well, in 2020, that was like after the yeah. canyons. 
in Utah, I drove up to, uh, yeah, those are my last two states I hadn't been to were Wyoming and Montana. So ah. I finally went to uh, Yellowstone and uh, Glacier. Oh, two of the most beautiful. Yeah, it was pretty impressive. Park. Yeah, and I hadn't been to Yosemite, which everybody is always surprised by, but um, it's amazing. And I think I'm so spoiled because if I ever go back and I all of a sudden have to have the experience of being stuck behind a line of cars or something, it's going to be disappointing. But yeah. at the time, it was great because there were no lines for anything. And we could park wherever we wanted. and. <laughs> Fantastic. How was it? Uh, we, was the, uh, Egypt and Jordan for an article? Yep, that'll be upcoming soon. So um, the Jordan part of the trip was sort of last minute. I had planned to go to Egypt because they had this incredible airfare sale from Salt Lake. And I'd never seen, it was like $660 from Salt Lake to Cairo, which you never see usually wow. around like 1500 or so. And I don't know why I was even looking. I think it was just fantasy travel planning. I do I that. <laughs> and then I have a friend who was putting together this woman's tour through a company she runs called Dainsley, which is small group women's tours. And um, I was just going to her like, well, I don't speak Arabic. And how is it to get around as a traveler there? And she was like, I'm doing a tour. You should just come along. So I planned on that. And then we added the Jordan part on the front end of it. So you got to go to Petra? Time. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, isn't yeah. Petra amazing? It really is. And we also went to a place called Wadi Mujib. Wadi, okay. Not Wadi Rum? Uh, we did go to Wadi Rum also. Okay. But Wadi Mujib is very similar to the Narrows in Zion, which I oh. was very surprised by. So a lot of people don't know about that. It's one thing you should add to your list if you do end up over there near the Dead Sea at some point. But And also Wadi Rum is amazing. Riding camels yeah. around where the Martian was filmed was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's really... I could have stayed in Petra for days just checking it out. It was really, really cool. Um, but I still haven't been, Egypt is on my list for one oh, reason or another. Been. I haven't, no, I was close, but yeah, it, you were very close. You got to see uh, the pointy things, you know, the pointy things. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And just for one reason or another, it just never worked out, uh, when I was close, but, and then again, things happen. There's an Arab spring and then there is a, a pandemic and the, blockage it, in the Suez canal. Yeah. And then it just kind of like <laughs> keeps moving down the list, but it's on the list. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's another one. Is there um, a dream destination? I mean, you tell me of a couple. I mean, it's Antarctica and stuff. But there's is there others that that are just way high on your list that you can't wait? Um, yeah, Antarctica is. Uh, I always give that as an answer because it's the seventh continent. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'd like to go check out Norway. I'd still like to go dive the Galapagos Islands. There's a lot of exploring down in Chile and Patagonia in that region. Um, yeah, like I said, the world is wide and there's just so much to see. It's really hard. I try to do, you know, one thing at a time and then also whatever comes up, you know, whatever rises to the top with, with press trips and destinations and who needs what covered. And I think the world is starting to be open to taking more foreign trips at this point. So as a travel journalist, it's maybe my job to help people along that journey, um, with figuring out like what's possible at this point to get out again, because I, I know a lot of people are climbing up the walls from not being able to get out there. Mm -hmm. If there is like, not to sound like the uh, Today Show here with this question and stuff, but I mean, do you see like trends happening in travel that, that some are good, some are bad? Um, a lot of people are saying if the pandemic taught anybody anything, it's that maybe we should, you know, give some of these at least natural uh, attractions a break 
from people and crowds, and it's better for them that maybe we do slower travel or limit numbers. Are you seeing that, or do you think it's just going to go back to the way it was and overcrowding everything? Yeah, great question. I am seeing that. I think what Yosemite and other national parks implemented in terms of getting permits and reservations, um, I I think that will stick around because it's a better experience for the people who are there enjoying it. Um, I am on the side of being more conservative with uh, how we how we treat our public lands and spaces. So I think it's great that Thailand limits the number of people that can be on the famous beach at the same time. You know, I think there's no planet B, so it's important that we protect those natural resources. And um, yeah, I would say that's definitely more of a trend that we're seeing. Slow travel is definitely a thing. And I, I'm curious to see what's going to happen in terms of people being required to have vaccines, even on domestic flights. You know, I really doubt that that will happen, but I think I'm fine. This may be a controversial opinion, but I don't care. If Hawaii says like, we're only going to allow vaccinated people on the islands, then I'm fine with that. Great. That's one place that I can go and have to worry less about getting it. You know, I never got COVID. I haven't so far, knock on wood. Um, So I'm not, I'm not planning to. And I mean, I feel like I've been able to travel and be safe and I have no problem wearing my mask. And I think that's something that we could all work together on. How did like Jordan and Egypt handle all that? I mean, you said you had a test to go in, but I mean, yeah, that you didn't have to quarantine or anything. Nope. I did not have to quarantine. Um, Jordan was more strict about it. I'd say they're a little bit more advanced um, developmentally, infrastructure wise, all that kind of stuff. Um, a little bit more prepared for something like a global pandemic. Egypt, it was the more, um, like, I think people only wear their masks if they were sick. And I (laughs) think, uh, of 110 million people that live in Egypt only at the time, 2% were vaccinated. So we just had to be really careful. Like in public, um, we were always wearing masks unless, you know, I would take my mask off for photos, but so you don't see me always wearing my mask if you're looking at my photos, but you should know that behind the scenes, like it's absolutely on 100% of the time. Well, in some countries, a little, the mask and uh, a little modesty is not such a bad thing. You can hide a little more. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't stand out as a tourist as much in, in my mask. You know, as a woman, it, it may not be such a bad thing either. I mean, in a, in a Muslim country anyway. Some, yeah, I mean, there are some advantages. I never felt unsafe. I mean, I hadn't traveled extensively in any majority Muslim countries until that point. But I will say, like, even though they want your attention to buy things, nobody was grabbing at me. I felt very safe. Um, so I didn't get any sense of that. Like, and I don't think that that would have mattered if I was wearing a face mask or not. Um, mm-hmm. But it is, I mean, you sure do stick out, especially in places like Japan, like, you know, a couple of white girls walking around, like there's no, <laughs> there's no pretending in that situation, you know? And the whitest white girl, the <laughs> Scottish, Irish blood, you know, deep tan going there. Sure. I know. I'm definitely like as white as you can get. It's embarrassing. <laughs> I'm kidding you, of course. No, no, it's, it's totally fair, but people always think about it because I'm just, I stopped trying to even tan because it just doesn't, that's not. <laughs> well, you just got to be careful, bad. you know, in, in hot places, you know, I've had sunburns ruin vacations for me. So you got to be really careful. And especially on dive boats, it gets, you know, fried. Ski hills, you'll get fried. People oh, yeah. forget, you know, you're on that mountain between yeah. between being closer to the sun and then it reflecting off the snow. Yeah. You fry. You fry up there. Yeah. 
glacier burns are a real thing. So you have to be very careful and always wear your sun cream. Yeah. Have (laughs) have you noticed a big difference in terms of those of us who live in the West, the Western US, you know, we have a burn season Yeah. now. Are you noticing a difference of snow in terms of even when you were a kid? Totally. Yeah. Um, It's, it's so noticeable. There, it used to be, there were 10 or 11 days a year where the streets of Salt Lake were pretty treacherous to drive because there was so much snow in the Valley. And now, I mean, we're usually January can be kind of a dry month for snow and February is like the best month of skiing. And it's like you said, it's February 9th and it's dry up here. We're just waiting for the snow and there's nothing even in the forecast. We have such a high pressure system. So it's horrible because it creates a valley inversion and we all get it stuck in the pollution. But I think as climate change continues to uh, threaten this, the entire ski industry, I mean, it'll be only skiing at higher elevations and it's going to have a really hard impact. I mean, I think the, the best year at Snowbird and Alta were around 700, between 700 and 800 inches. I think usually they have around 500. We're not even close to that right now. And last year it was pretty dry until the beginning of February, but Mm -hmm. then it really picked up. So yeah, it's quite sad to see the difference even between when I was a little kid, it used to really snow a ton all the time and it's just not. And, uh, and as divers, you know, what we've seen of the reefs around the world, I mean, I've been diving for 30 years and it's, it's heartbreaking. Really? It is heartbreaking. The Red Sea was very cool. A lot of life in there, but I did see some plastic bags from afar and that made me really sad. It just is not protected. And you know, what's happening to the Great Barrier Reef and all that. It's just really depressing. And I, I feel like it adds to that sense of like, I really need to go dive the Great Barrier Reef while it's still a thing to go and see it. And then also like, are the redwoods going to burn down? Are we going to yeah. talk about you know, like at some point, like how threatened those are and do I need to see them right now? <laughs> Maybe, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's tough. I mean, it, so where have you dived that was been your favorite place? I think, I think I'm asking favorites again. I, gosh, hate, that, I hate that no, question. But. Totally fair question. Um, I think in terms of the life in the sea, the Red Sea was great. And then um, the coral in near Cozumel is really spectacular. I mm. thought that was pretty great. Um, Hawaii is always a good go-to spot and then dove a bit in Costa Rica. That was really, I remember it being pretty spectacular there, but the, the rainbow reef and my, my first, I think first or second, my second dive was in Fiji and I just had no, no concept of like, oh, this is amazing with all the tropical fish and the rainbow reef and clear water kind of ruins you for expectations in terms of what happens in the future. You know, healthy reefs are getting fewer and fewer. You got to seek them out, unfortunately. But I haven't dove uh, the Red Sea either. I, w- I want to go to Egypt. And did you go to Sharm el-Sheikh? Uh, we did not. Um, I think that was the one area that they were saying, like, there was an advisory against. And there's really oh. so much to see there that it's hard. We did an Isle cruise. We did a hot air balloon ride over the Valley of the Kings. I mean, I really felt like we accomplished a lot, but I still didn't get down to Abu Simbel, which is, you know, close to the border of the Sudan. And um, I don't know, I guess I could go back and get that one, but it's, there's just so much to see there. It's a big country. And did you get the shot of you floating in the Dead Sea, reading the newspaper? Without uh, being able yeah, to... I was reading Tom Sawyer. I sure did. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we all got that one. You can't sink. Sure. We'll do a speed round here. Oh, okay. Um, any food poisoning? 
ever anywhere. Yeah, on the ship leaving India on semester at sea, we all got dysentery. So that was India. Fun. That took me down. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, but then after that, your stomach is made of iron. So it's <laughs> forward, you know, you can kind of handle a lot more. But it was terrible to get food poisoning at the same time as everybody else on a ship. Oh say. yeah. Oh yeah. I just, one. One. I just that came off one. I just came off one. Me yeah. and my norovirus just had it. Oh no. Yeah. What about your worst flight experience? I briefly mentioned this, but I had a, unexpectedly over in Cairo on my way to Amman and was almost not allowed to leave the country. And that was pretty terrifying. Just <laughs> I've not really ever experienced that where, especially as an American traveler with a US passport, not that we can go anywhere, but I've never been, I've never had the experience of you can't leave. And also you have no way to communicate and there's not, it's not real clear how to get out of that situation. What was their reasoning? They, they wanted you to have a, a visa of some sort? Um, no, it was the PCR test situation. Oh. Of the, you know, the United States isn't obviously on nationalized healthcare, so we don't have QR codes, which is what the rest of the world is using. And my flight was supposed to be, I was supposed to spend four hours in Cairo and then get on a flight to Amman. But my flight into Cairo got diverted. And so I had to spend an unexpected night in Cairo. So does that make sense before I went on to Jordan? And then because I had to spend the extra night, they were like, oh, well, your COVID test is invalid now because instead of being able to use it to get on my flight to Amman, I technically entered the country of Egypt. And so they were trying to tell me it was like not valid. And then as it turns out, it was kind of a shakedown and they were just like, but for $40. Uh huh. Here we go. Yeah. Cash. Always in cash. Yeah. They were like, you can sign up, <clears throat> you can, you know, fill out this paper, sign up or whatever, and then, you know, just get your PCR test once you get to Oman. And at this point, I was like, $40 sounds like an amazing price to like be done dealing with this issue. And so I paid him the $40. And then, of course, I did not have to take my test over again when I got to Oman <laughs> because they were happily accepting my test results. But it was just a mess. And I was getting there by myself. So it was super stressful. And in the Cairo airport, they don't have Wi-Fi that you can use. So there's oh. not a way to communicate, which makes it especially frustrating. If you're a local, they'll text you a code to jump on their local internet, which they'll let you use for 30 minutes. But if you're not, then it just can be very challenging. And um, hmm. yeah, so that, w- that was a pretty frustrating situation, I would say. What's, um, the, what's a order. piece of travel gear or equipment or anything that you can't leave home without? Um I stole a blanket off of a Delta Airlines flight when I was on my way to go backpacking through Europe after college. It's one of those like thin airplane blankets. And I feel like it was a good use of it because they were about ready to get rid of that version of those blankets anyway. Yeah, it's an antique at this point. Yeah. uh, And I've just had it ever since. It's so nice (laughs) to have a blanket with you for flying or if you're in a place where you just need a little bit of extra coverage. I, it's kind of a silly thing, but it's just something that I've always had. And it, it makes it on almost every one of my journey's flights anyway. I don't really <laughs> get on road trips, but it's a silly thing, but it actually makes a world of difference. When you need it, you need it. When you write for, say, Outside Magazine or something like that, do you, I guess, do they want you to take all the photos? No, they have a, a photo studio and they, so they call in the gear and they set everything up and they wouldn't want my photos, my like amateur shots. Well, I know, but I mean, (laughs) budgets are what budgets are, you know, now they're, now they're hiring people who will do all that for nothing. Yeah. I think it's always a good skill to be able to take 
photos and I take a lot of them. I love taking many photos, like to the point where I think it's probably very annoying to whomever uh, is on my trip <laughs> with me. All my travel buddies are like another photo, but um, it actually does pay off sometimes if I need to turn in the photos to use to pair with an article for like Lonely Planet or something. Okay. They'll take they'll take some photos from me. Well, sometime. I always wonder about people who write for Lonely Planet. You carry well, I used to anyway, um, almost like a uh, like a critic, you know, back in like the Broadway you know, critic days, I mean, you had a lot of power. Uh, if you put a, a restaurant in there, you know, that could change their whole business. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, are you conscious of that when you write for Lonely Planet? And, you know, the, do people ever try to, you know, hey, you know, bribe you to give us a, <laughs> give us a good write-up? Could you just... No, I mean, fortunately, I've never had anybody try to bribe me. Um, it's pretty honest. I will say that if there's something about a place that I think is not great, then instead of being very negative about it, I tend to just leave it out of the article. Um, so I know that it's a powerful thing for brands to have their gear and outside. I understand it's a powerful thing for me to be mentioning hotels or what to do in destinations. And I take it seriously. I mean, I want people to go and have a great experience too. And they're trusting me with this insider knowledge of I've done this and and you can too. Um, but I, I understand just because of how much it meant to me to be traveling around Europe with my lonely planet guide. And, you know, here's the three hostels that they recommend or whatever. I absolutely use those. And now we have the world at our fingertips, right? So it's a much different place and we have access to so much more information. Um, But I think that people still rely on the expertise of travel writers more so than influencers, I would say, because I'm not just showcasing what a place looks like, but your actual experience while you're there. Well, what about, um, say, Outside Magazine? I'm just using them as an example. They're going to send you to so-and-so ski area. We're going to send you to Japan. Now, there's a million places you could stay there. What is their influence to say, no, you have to stay at this place, or do you choose it? Um, usually it would be working with the destination to, like, they'll work with their local chamber of commerce and say, like, we have journalists coming like, and then I assume they put out like a request for like an RFP to say like, who would be interested in having these media stay here. And, you know, I'm not actually quite sure how it works sometimes on the, on the PR end of it, how they figure out which hotels to send us to. Um, But it's kind of a combination. Sometimes I'm reaching out saying, Hey, I'm going to be in the area. What do you think? Or I'd like to go to this destination. And sometimes it's PR people saying like, we have this trip. We're going to go to this place. We're going to stay at this hotel. We're going to eat at this restaurant. Right. But I'm just wondering how much leeway you had. It's like you do your own research. I'm sure it's like, okay, they want me to eat at this restaurant. But I saw online this cool little place that I want to go eat at. Can you break away from their plan and maybe squeeze it into the article? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's always free time to do whatever you want. And you can absolutely push back because it's your time and experience as well. Um, A lot of times what happens is that I'm kind of a picky eater. I admit this on top of being vegetarian. And so um, what happens a lot of time just to make it easier is they'll be like, Oh, we had the chef prepare a special menu for you and your group of other media. And 
it gets tricky because we want to be able to order off of the menu like your average customer would, because that's the experience we're going to be writing about. And so it gets tricky to say like, thank you, but it's going to be better if I'm allowed to order off the menu um, to have that experience, even though I very much appreciate that they want to showcase their signature dishes, et cetera. It's always like something with like beef and mushrooms right. which I eat. <laughs> and, you know, so it's, it's kind of a, a hard thing. Uh, you go in there with your Harry Met Sally uh, list of things. I want this on the side. I mean, uh, I'm that. not that if difficult, could... but it's just, you know, everybody <laughs> has their preferences, which is fine. <laughs> totally okay to have preferences. I think, you know, there's probably lots of other vegetarians out there who also don't like mushrooms. Yeah, you know, vegetarians pretty easy for people to figure out. It's just like, I, okay. I don't eat meat. Vegan is a hard thing. Yeah, vegan, vegan is a hard thing. Yeah, vegan is very difficult because everything has like eggs and dairy in it or something so just yeah okay the noodles oh the noodles have egg and like oh my god okay this is this is hard this is hard yeah Yeah. i mean but i think it's fine to have preferences and and i would say at least 30 percent of the general population has some sort of dietary restriction and so i'm out there representing for people who have those (laughs) issues too and it's not just me there's lots of people who maybe not vegan but you know I'm kidding you. No, it's fine. We, I, we can see your article on highmaintenance.com and then we'll. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. What's the next trip for you? What's what's coming up? What's set in stone? Um, I provided I get my passport back in time because I'm going through that right now. Oh, uh, boy. Yeah. I will be going to Fiji again. Uh, pretty soon. So, which is great because it's been a while since I've been there. The temptation with me though, is that as long as I'm in the neighborhood, I'm like, Oh, I could pop over and I could dive the great barrier reef. And then New Zealand is right there. So even though these are like hundreds of miles apart, you know, it's just, you don't make it over to the South Pacific that often. So it's really tempting to say like, Oh, I just want to pop over here and go there really quick. And then three months later you come home. Fiji. I can't wait to hear about that. I still haven't, uh, still haven't been. You haven't made it over there? No. No, I, I want to for sure. So I'll be anxiously awaiting your your report. Yeah, I'm excited to go. I mean, there's so many places on the list, but that's just one of those things that came up. You know, I wasn't like, oh, I really need to go back to Fiji. It was just, you know, the email came in and I said, yeah. There are there are deals uh, from LA all the time to Fiji. So it's, yeah, it's, it's not as far as you think it would be. No, it's only like a 10 hour flight, which is a long flight, but it's also 10 hours to Japan. Yeah. In LA. So there are lots of options over there. And they've just but, opened up or have yeah, they been they, open? Um, they've been open. And then Australia, I think, is opening to all tourists who are vaccinated at the end of February. Yeah. Yeah, that could change. I mean, it's still. It's all up in the air, right? Everything yeah. can change. Right now, I've learned to rely on nothing. I mean, I'm not. I can't Everything's in pencil, I'm, I say. Everything's in yeah. pencil now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I can't tell you that I'm going to Fiji until I'm like there. <laughs> yeah, right. Tweeting. That sounds like a great. I mean it, you know, I'm jealous of you on that trip. Okay, now get. Uh, where can people see your stuff? I mean, do you have a website, and where can people follow you on social media? I do have a website. Um, I need to update it more often, but like they say, the mechanics car is always the last to get worked on. Right. It's um, just my name, melissamcgiven.com, and then um, I'm on Instagram at at Miss Melissa. It's M-I-S-S-M-L-I-S-S. Um, if people want to follow my travels, that's where I post a lot of stuff. That's great. That's great. So um, thank you for doing this. 
Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. And I apologize for the uh, technical difficulties we had earlier that people will not have heard because I will have cut it all out. Now nah, you'll figure it out. <laughs> so finally, what do you think all this uh, travel and all the places you've been and what you've seen, how has it changed you as a person and how you look at people in, in the world? Um, that is a good question. I do think um, there's nothing like travel to give you perspective, travel and tragedy, both of which I've had a lot of. So I think it's great for building character and it helps you to realize kind of how yes, the world is large, but it's also small. And you're always relying on the mercy of other people, um, locals. And so I think it can really showcase how great humanity is. Um, just being exposed to so many different types of people really broadens your mind. And I, I understand how incredibly privileged I am and how lucky I am to live this life but it would be something that I would want for everybody else to have the same kind of perspective of exposure to other people that it affords you that kind of travel. So um, I, I think just a greater compassion for the world at large and what lives people live on the other side of the planet and locally too, you know? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Hang on the line here for a second, and I'm going to stop the recording. Thanks for having me. It was but really yeah. fun. Melissa McGibbon, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.